till next week, but uh, 24, and let's read down through 34. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, Well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone who is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking this morning by your Spirit that you would make this text, these words come alive in our minds and our hearts. That the light of the gospel would shine in the dark places. That our lives would adjust to your truth today. Um, we would not have this silly expectation that you need to adjust to our truth. And so you are the God who speaks. And so in this room today, we are saying to you, your people are listening. So thank you for the hope that we find in your word here. Be with the kids as they are learning and as they are worshiping today as well. In your name we pray, amen. Kids, you guys can go. Everybody else have a seat. So you will see on the screen here in just a moment, that's half the room leaves. Bye. Um, we'll start with point six because all of this is really one section that we started with last week that is surrounded by this statement. One thing I know is that I was blind and now I see. And so we will continue in part two of that today. We needed to come back to 24 and 25 to begin our time today for in these verses... There is real practical application to where, where we are right now, what we are dealing with and seeing not only in our nation and our culture, but also around the world and other places where the gospel is not affirmed. Any student of history would see that throughout history, governments or sometimes even religious groups within Christianity um, have had to deal with man-centered authoritarianism where people are told what you can believe, what to think, what to say, what you can't say, and, and things of that nature. And we see this here in this text, and I think it's important for us to see the principles that are here, for they will serve us well in regard to what we are seeing even now in our day. In particular, in regard to governments, you see this in communist countries, places where there is a, a dictator. And even sadly, in some religious circles, you see this as well, where there's great pressure. So look with me again in 24 and 25, and then I'm going to point out some important things here 
uh, to set the stage for the rest of our time today. So this is the second time, it says in 24, that they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And now the former blind man speaks and says, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do, I've become certain of this, that though I was blind, now I see. Now we know this by walking through this. Ever since John chapter 5, Jesus has been clashing with the religious leaders and at times some of the people. In regard to the religious leaders, they really had a hard time with him, for they were deeply threatened. They were making a lot of money over the religious system that they had set up. He threatened that twice um, in his ministry, I believe at the beginning and also at the end. He comes into the temple and overturns the money changers. And so you have these two radical events that happen in the beginning and also in the end. And then he, he has done and said a number of different things on the Sabbath day. And so for them, they have really deep issues with Christ in regard to the things that he did and the things that he was saying. And so I, let's, let's deal with this for a moment because I think it's very important. Um, because you probably have sensed it as well as I that toward those who believe the way that we believe in this country, there seems to be on the horizon an increasing of us being told what to think, what not to say, what we can say in perspectives of that. And so let's, let's talk about that for a moment because I believe it will serve us well in preparation. Every, whether it's government, religious group, whatever the case may be, these principles are found there that we see here. And the first principle about the destruction of man-centered power is this. The first principle is, is that you are told what you can say and what you cannot say in those groups. And so the man, if you look at 24, they've called the man who, was, who had been blind and they said to him, we're going to tell you what you're going to say. You've been saying Jesus is the one who put the mud on your eyes and healed you, but we think he's a sinner, so we're going to tell you what you have to say now. And so this is what you're going to say. You're going to proclaim, give glory to God. Now, they're not equating Jesus as the Messiah, so they're not affirming that Christ is God, even though Christ has been affirming this since John chapter 5. And so they tell him here, this is what you are going to say. And you're going to stop saying what you have been saying, and you're going to say this, you're going to give glory to God. And we are seeing an increase of this in our culture. You see it in other cultures of the world in regard to Christianity, where those governments or religious, like Hinduism, that's deeply tied into the government of a nation, consistently tells Christians in those nations, uh, you can't share your faith, you can't try to convert people into this, or you will be arrested. And so here we have them telling him what he can say and what he is not to say. Secondly, you see this. We're also going to tell you what you can think or what you can affirm as the truth. So every, every group has an idea. Okay, this is, our, this is our truth. And the religious leaders had an idea. This is what our truth is. And our truth is this. It's not Jesus as the Messiah. So we're going to tell you that you can't say that. Our version of truth is this. You can't violate the Sabbath. You can't heal on the Sabbath. You can't do this on the Sabbath. And Jesus, 
did those things and said a number of different things. And so the third part of verse 24, it says this. They tell him, here's our truth. We know that this man is a sinner. So therefore, you need to affirm what we are telling you about who Christ is. He's not the Messiah. And again, if you remember, they have already gotten the word out that if anybody affirms Jesus as the Messiah, they have threatened him that they would be excommunicated and kicked out of not just local synagogues, but they've been told that they cannot longer come to the temple and worship. And so, so they are telling him what he can say, what he cannot say. Secondly, they are telling him what the truth is, what he needs to believe in regard to Christ, that he is a sinner. In our culture today, let's just talk about here in the United States of America. There is a huge battle being waged for truth. And we Christians proclaim the truth that it's connected to Christ. He is the truth, and the Word of God is the truth, and that's where we want to stand. But in our culture, there are many rivals, and I use that little. There is no rival to God. There's no rival to Christ. But there are many in our world today, in our culture, that proclaim things about truth where they are attempting to discredit Christianity and discredit what we are believing. So there is a battle going on of who is going to narrate and tell the story of truth in our culture. I was reminded this week of something that Jesus' half-brother wrote. His name was Jude. He wrote a one-page letter. It's got some very interesting stuff in it, but he begins this letter with a very very declarative statement that's really important for us this morning. Listen to these words. Jude writes, I found it necessary, writing to a group of believers, to write appealing to you. So I'm writing this letter to appeal to you to to think about your faith and to think about your role in the world. And this is what he says. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend, fight for, stand in, proclaim, uh, contest for this reason, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So here's what Jude is saying to this group of believers. In the world that you live in, they're going to proclaim this truth, and it's going to be contrary to gospel truth. And as a believer who has been rescued from your sin, ransomed by the blood of Christ, you are to contend for the truth in a world who has another perspective of that. And you contend connected to, watch this, not to whatever's new that comes along. You are to contend for the gospel that was in the very beginning given to those who walked with Jesus. And he he says, it literally says those words, that was once in the beginning, delivered to the saints. We can only contend for the truth if we know the truth. So that's why it's critical for us to know what the Bible has to say and to be aware of relevant texts that speak to our culture today. And so here, this text, though it was happening in the temple almost 2,000 years ago, we are seeing it unfold in our country today. Here, you Christians, you followers of God, this is what you can say, this is what you cannot say, and this is what you are to believe as the truth. I know you have a perspective of the truth, but we're telling you your perspective connected to the Bible is not the truth. This is actually the truth. And these contending and competing narratives are unfolding in our days. 
Here's the third perspective. If you don't agree with that, there's always a response to man-centered authoritarianism, and that is we're going to revile you. We're going to attack you. We're going to call you names. We're going to say things about you, and that's exactly what they do here. So verse 28 says they reviled him saying, well, you are his disciple, you're connected to the one that we're telling you is a sinner, but we are connecting ourselves with Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, gave Moses the words, and we're going to stand with Moses. You're standing with this man that we are telling you is a sinner, and so they revile him. I, I, don't, I don't know in my lifetime if I've ever been reviled, but when you read about it in the Bible, it, it's connected to deep-seated anger. Maybe, maybe my wife has reviled me um, because I haven't always been perfect. There's been some moments. But you know what that means. We've seen it. You've seen religious zealots, on, particularly you know, other parts of the world. and We've even seen social zealots in our country in 2020. And there's a passion. And there's name-calling. And there's a fighting. And there's a pushback. And so that's what they do to the man. Okay, if you're not going to buy into what we're telling you can say and what you cannot say, um, you're, you're going to believe our truth, and if you don't believe our truth, we're going to revile you. Our culture today is pushing groupthink is the only way to think, and if you deter from any aspects of the groupthink, that means trouble for you, and particularly in regard to people of faith. And so there are verbal responses that they give. We don't know all the things that they said to him, but reviling him included more than Jesus is a sinner and who are you to teach us. They reviled him. This was a pretty intense moment in dealing with him. Here's the fourth principle about man-centered power and the destructive nature of it is that those in power tell people that they are not going to listen to the little people. They're going to tell the little people, we have no interest listening to any perspective that you have. And this is exactly what they do here. So in verse 34 it says this, they tell him, who in the world are you to teach us? We are the teachers of Israel. And you would teach us about what truth is and what's right. And so they, they tell him, we have no interest in listening to any perspective on you. By the way, let me just set this forth. The only reason they are having this conversation is because Jesus opened the eyes of a man who's been born blind. This conversation would not be taking place without the work and the power of Christ happening. And so, so here they are. This event has happened. He can't see now. How amazing is that? He can see. Born, not seeing, seeing. And they've got a narrative telling the man who couldn't see, who can see, what he ought to believe. And he's like, okay, I don't know who you are, but... But I, I can't buy your narrative because here's what I know to be true. About two hours ago, I walked into this temple and I could not see. And all I can say now is that guy who spit and he made mud and he rubbed on my eyes and he told me to go wash, I went and did exactly what he told me and I can see now. And this is the silliness of this man-centered authoritarianism of telling people what is true when it's clear what truth is and it's clear what lies are. So he's not buying it. But let me just touch on this. So he, they say to him, you have nothing to add to this conversation. We as the religious leaders, we, we are masters of understanding what has happened to you in your life. And he's like, no, you aren't. And he will continue to unveil that to them. 
his view, he has a pretty accurate understanding of the truth. Now let me just make three statements and we're going to look at one more thing and we'll go to the next point. They are wanting him to accommodate, watch this, they have a truth and they are wanting the blind man who's experienced sight now to shift his perspective to accommodate his perspective on the miracle that has happened to him to their truth. It's just confusing and it makes no sense, but it's what they're trying to do. Anytime God's people accommodate the truth of culture, they lose a perspective on the authority of Scripture. And so that's why we here, and in my preaching and in what we do with the youth, we want to push back on the narrative of our culture that's saying, no, you Christians should believe this. No, we Christians and Christ followers, we embrace the truth of the Scripture. And so accommodation to Scripture leads to an abandonment, or excuse me, an accommodation to culture leads eventually to an abandonment of the truth of Scripture. And anytime the people of God, in accommodation, um, give in to the culture, it affects the church, and the church loses its uniqueness in the world. What's the uniqueness of the church? We are the people of God who have been redeemed. We are the voice that speaks truth into the culture, that lives out truth, that invites people to come to know He who is the truth and He who can save us. And so the church, when it accommodates the culture, it loses the authority of Scripture in her midst. And then in the midst of that as well, the church loses its uniqueness. We are not to look like the world. We are to have a different voice. We are to speak and affirm different things. And thirdly, with this, when the church loses its uniqueness, it loses its connection to historic Christianity. And that's why so many denominations and churches today, over the last 30 to 40 years, go from one philosophy to other philosophies, changing things all the time. Because when you accommodate, you lose the authority of Scripture, you lose your place to be unique, and then eventually what happens is you lose your connection to historic Christianity, and the church loses its way. And so, so in our day and time, we are seeing this in our midst, um, uh, in our country, in regard to many churches and seminaries and denominations. And then eventually, this is what happens. Eventually, and we know this because of some of the places that we travel to mission-wise, there are parts of the world to push back against religious groups that are connected to government. It means it, it really costs you your faith. You, you potentially are going to spend the rest of your life in prison or you're going to be killed and you will be done away with. And this is what happens with the man. They eventually get to a place where he's like, I'm not giving in to what you're asking me to, to embrace as truth, your truth. Because I know what truth is. That man, Jesus, touched my eyes and I can see now. And he just continues to push that. And so, so the religious leaders tell him this reality, we're done with you. And they literally excommunicate him from the temple. Now, tragic moment for the man, but we've all come to learn this. Sometimes things enter into our life, do they not, that are difficult. And in the moment we're like, how do I recover from this? What does the future hold? You get a few months down the road and you look back and God does something and you go, oh, this is why God did this. 
to thrust me to a new place. This man, if he would have stayed and just given in to what they were telling him he needed to say, guess what? Later, next week, he's going to be excommunicated, which is a good thing. And the reason is, is that Jesus is going to be walking on the steps of the temple and he's going to see the man and he's going to say to the man, hey, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he's like, yeah, uh, yeah, tell me who he is and I'm ready to believe. And Jesus is like, me, believe. And so this bad moment thrust him to a place outside the temple where Jesus was coincidentally passing by again and brings the man to spiritual faith. So before we move on to point two, I just, I think you know as I've walked through these things, we are hearing these things in our country today toward Christ followers, this perspective of man-centered power. And so we just do this. We learn from this man. He's going to teach us how do we deal with this kind of perspective. So here's what happens now. So, so here we are in verse 26. So they bring him back a second time and they want to talk to him. And so let's look at 26 and 28. Let's just read it again. I want to point out a couple of principles here. Is it hot in here or is it me? Am I just hot? Y'all are, uh, yeah, I'm just always hot. Okay, can somebody come fan me? Because I'm, I'm about to break out and sweat. Okay, all right, all right, I'll just sweat. So I need to get a cloth here in a minute. Um, so, all right, <clears throat> let's talk about discipleship. This man's not a believer yet. He will come to faith, we'll see next week. But in just a, a matter of time from this conversation, he will come to faith. And G- he teaches us some unique things. Let's look at 26 to 28. Follow with me and let's make some, some, some points together about discipleship. So they said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he said to them, listen, I've told you already. And you wouldn't even listen to me. So I've told you you wouldn't listen. Why in the world do you even want to hear it again? Do you also, they must have loved this statement, do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple but we are disciples of Moses. This conversation sets forth for us four unique principles about what disciples of Christ look like. Now, here's the reality. Everybody in the room this morning, we are a disciple of someone. We are, disciple means learner. We are learning of something. If you've got um, a secular worldview, you are reading and listening to things, and you are a disciple, learning, being shaped, by that perspective. And then there are Christian disciples who want to be shaped by the Word of God in examining the life of Christ and the teaching of Scripture. But there are some real clear-cut principles here that the Pharisees are going to speak and the man's going to speak into, and we're going to learn from him about discipleship. What does it look like to be a disciple? And here's the first principle. Disciples of Jesus always have their eyes opened by Christ and salvation now again this man's not come to this place yet where his spiritual eyes are opened but his eyes are open and he is beginning to understand exactly who christ is so they say to him what did he do to you how did he open your eyes every disciple of christ has christ opening their eyes in salvation revealing who he is calling people to come to a place to believe now why are they asking him again 
if they're not even interested in really listening, I think that they want to catch him to see, is he going to change his story? If he changes his story at all, then they can discredit him of giving any credit to Christ. And so watch what he says to them. Says to them. He basically says this, Pharisees, listen, all I can do is tell you what happened to me a couple hours ago. I can, I can just tell you what transpired in my life. And then he, he says this to them. I can explain this to you, but I can't help you understand this. You've got to come to this understanding yourself. You, your eyes are going to have to be open to understand what I'm telling you. And all of us can relate to that. You have anybody in your life and you've shared the gospel with them over and over and over and over again. And you think you come to the 10th time, you're like, this time they're going to understand. Boy, I've explained this so well. It's the 10th time. They're going to get it. And you share it. And they just go, I, I, I don't get it. I don't understand. And I'm not interested in that. So he's telling these religious leaders, watch this. They're, one of their big issues with them is they think he's teaching them. And he is. But they think they're the teachers. That they need to be teaching him how he needs to understand things. And so he tells them, I can tell you what happened to me, but I cannot help you understand and comprehend what happened to me. But I'm just telling you, I have come to know that he, Jesus, opened my eyes. Every disciple of Christ that begins with an eye-opening revelation of who Christ is in our lives. Here's a second perspective about discipleship. Verse 27, he answered them, I've told you already, you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Disciples of Jesus, they listen to Jesus. They listen to the stories. They listen to the testimonies about Jesus. Christ's words matter to true disciples. So he courageously tells them the complete truth. I've told you the whole truth. I don't have anything to add to it. I can't really take anything away from it. I've told you the deal. That guy, I didn't see it, but he spit in the dirt and he made mud and he rubbed it on my eyes and he told me to go wash. I obeyed him. I washed and I can see you now. So I can just tell you what I know to be the truth. I can't help you understand it. But then he also says this, the fact that you are asking me this again means this, that you're not even really interested. You have not listened to anything that I've told you about what has taken place in my life. Disciples of Jesus, listen to his words. I love reading the book of Acts and seeing the acts of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of people and in cities and in nations among people. I love reading history books about the faith and about how God worked in the lives of people and transformed their life. I love talking to you and hearing what you're learning and what Christ is doing. You know one of the great characteristics of Christians? We love to hear the stories of Christ's work in people's lives. And when we hear those stories, what do they do? They lift our faith and they encourage us that God is at work. And if God's at work in somebody like that, in a situation like that, then there's probably a possibility that he can work in my life, in this situation, in this time. And so disciples of Jesus, they listen to Jesus. And this man's telling these religious leaders, and again, teaching them, telling them, 
Listen, here's an aspect of discipleship. It embraces the truth of God's work. It embraces the truth of what His people communicate about what He is doing, and they listen. And I believe if Jesus would have walked up as they are having this conversation, I think the man would have turned his back to the Pharisees, and he would have talked to Jesus. And he would have listened, and he would have embraced, he would have wanted to know more. And I think if Jesus would have walked up, and the Pharisees would have had their way, they would have attacked Jesus again for violating their rules. There is something deeply missing in John chapter 9 that never enters in John chapter 9. And I want it to enter right now just for a moment. And again, I want you to, I want you to think about this reality. We've heard this story so many times. You know, as kids, if you've grown up in church, we're so familiar with the man born blind and he can see now. But I want you to just stop for a moment and I want you to think how staggering this miracle is. I want you to think about that. Born blind. No medicine, no doctor, no amount of prayer, no amount of faithfulness, no amount of perfect faith could restore his sight. And through the craziness of spitting in dirt and mud and washing in the pool of Siloam, a man born blind sees. That is a staggering, staggering reality. And you know what's missing in John chapter 9? Nobody celebrates this. Nobody celebrates this. The religious leaders who should have known better through the writings of Isaiah that the Messiah would open the eyes of the blind. And there in the temple where Christ should have been exalted, they are discounting what Jesus has done. That's not a mark of discipleship, by the way. Disciples celebrate the work of God in people's lives, loving to hear the stories. So, so we learn here about a disciple. Disciples, they have their eyes open. Secondly, they listen to Jesus. Thirdly, disciples desire to be disciples. And I love this. I just love this. And again, I wish I could be there. I wish I could have seen it, heard it. Can you imagine their facial expressions when he says, hey, um, all this interest and all this talk about Jesus, is this because y'all want to become his followers? Are y'all interested in following Jesus? And you, can you just see their response to that? And that they respond like, who in the world are you? To speak to us and to instruct us on whose disciple we ought to be in our life. Let me tell you a great mark of disciples. Disciples desire to follow Jesus. True disciples desire Him. They want to know Him. And whether He is mocking all of their accusations, we cannot fully be sure. I know this, though, that sometimes there's a spiritual wittiness that comes in the silliness of the perspective of the world that we can speak into that just says that perspective makes no sense that you are holding. And as he says to them, he asks them the question, do you also want to become his disciples? He's calling people who are fighting Jesus to follow. And there's a principle here. You know what the principle is? If you know somebody that just says, I'm not going to follow, I'm not going to follow, I'm not going to follow, guess what sometimes we do? 
we ask them to what? To follow. You ask them again. Yeah, but I'm not going to follow. Well, maybe it's this. Is the reason you have such strong pride is because maybe this Jesus stuff is true. And your pride's getting in the way of you finding true, spiritual, life-giving freedom. So even in the midst of scoffers, it's okay to say, are you interested in being his disciple? Well, they're not. We know that. But it's all right. And I want you to notice this. The disciples so far, two and a half years into Jesus' ministry, have not one time stood toe-to-toe with the religious leaders. And here's a man, after a couple of hours, who's not even a believer yet, but God's opening his eyes. He is standing toe-to-toe and affirming the work of Christ in his life. And so, true disciples, they desire to be disciples. Here's the fourth principle. We'll move on to the next point. Following Jesus is going to determine our identity. It's going to put us in whose camp are we in. So, the religious leaders here are like, okay, we're, we're, we're going to step over here. We're in the Moses camp. And this man's like, no, I'm over here. I, I don't know whether the man's a sinner or not. I just know this, that he opened my eyes. And I'm in the Jesus camp. I'm in the guy who opened my eyes. And so there's a separation and identity happening and taking place in the text here. So they attack him, revile him, and say, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. And what the religious leaders didn't pause to think about in this moment was this, is that Moses is great and is godly and is God-loving and a great leader that Moses was. Moses couldn't save them. Moses couldn't forgive them. Moses couldn't extend mercy that they needed and the grace that they needed, but Jesus could. And so who we identify with says a lot about our spiritual life. And so here they are. They're like, no, we're going to be with Moses. And the man's like, no, I'm going to be with the guy who opened my eyes. And here's this principle, and it's there. Our identity is connected with who we follow. And it's connected with who we desire, who we are listening to, and who has opened our eyes. And only Christ can open our spiritual eyes to see the glory of who He is. And so they, they make this great affirmation about who they are identifying with. Let's go to the next Look at 29 and 30. Let's talk about this for a moment. I want to share with you why we can trust Jesus with our lives. We can count on what has come to us in Scripture. 29 and 30. We know that God has spoken to Moses, the religious leader speaking. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why Listen to this wittiness. That's an amazing thing, religious leaders who know everything and are telling me what to believe. That's pretty amazing that you don't know who, where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. I find that pretty interesting. He's telling them about this. Now, I want you to watch this. There are three critical pieces in regard to understanding theology about who God is. And the religious leaders understand the framework of this. The former blind man, he understands it as well. They're just appropriating it in different ways. Religious leaders falsely, the former blind man rightly. It's raining, by the way. Hope your windows are not down. So watch this. Three things. 
as to why you and I can fully trust Christ. First one is this. First part of 29. Look at it. We know, they say, that God spoke to Moses, but they have great doubts that God is speaking to Jesus. But here's what they understand. That there is an authoritative, powerful speaking of God, religious leaders, but not Jesus. But I want to put forth for us this morning the reason you and I can trust the Scripture, we can trust what has come to us, is because God has an authoritative voice that speaks from the Scriptures for the good of our lives, for the salvation of our lives, for the joy of our lives, for the glory of His name, and for our goodness. And so, so they affirm... We know that God of heaven spoke to Moses. Moses gave us the words. And as a nation, these words that came from heaven, from God, it came to us. They've shaped our lives. So we know Moses, and so we're going to side with him, but we have no idea about this guy. But we know this morning that Christ, when he speaks, he has spoken authoritatively, and his words can be trusted, embraced, followed with all of our lives. As a matter of fact, Jesus, way back in John chapter 5, told them in verse 45, He said these words, If you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? Because Moses wrote about me. Moses in his writings and all of this, that was about to reveal who I was going to be. And yet they ignored Jesus' words in John 5, and they're ignoring His words here. And they were like, there's no way Jesus can be a spokesman for God. There's no way that He can do that. And they are not convinced that Jesus could be that. Which is interesting, because back in John chapter 7, 27 and 52, as they make this statement, we don't even know where this guy comes from. Well, they've had a perspective of where he comes from. And they said, there's nothing good that can come from where? Nazareth. They know, they know where he's come from. And so this is just another lie to discredit and to mock. But you and I can trust Christ, fully trust him today, because he is the one who speaks the truth to us. Here's a, something backing that up. Why is his word so trustworthy? Look at the next phrase, 29. But as for this man, they say, we don't know where he comes from. Well, we know where he comes from, right? He's the eternal God who never had a beginning and never have an end. Before he came to earth to live about three and a half decades, he was in heaven. He is of heaven. He is God. His nature is God. And so his words are authoritative. Why? Because he came from heaven. And now they're, they're making this statement. We don't know where he came from, but we know where he came from. He is of heaven, and we can trust what Christ has said. It's backed up by the authority of the holiness and the righteousness of heaven. But in their minds, he's just a spouter off of things that are not true. He's this great deceiver. You can't trust him. And so, former blind man, you can't bank on what that God's telling you. You need to think differently about that. But he can't think differently about that because of what has happened to him. Jesus has said this several times that He is of heaven. Just listen to these. John 3, 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. 
John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John eight twenty three. He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Why can we trust this book? Why can we trust the nature of Christ? Why can we trust the words and the teachings of Christ? Well, they are authoritative. They are powerful. And they are so because of the nature of God and where He came from. He is of heaven. These are not man's words. This is not Shakespeare that we're talking about this morning. What a boring thing we could do today. It might be interesting, entertaining, but not life-giving. We're talking about life stuff here this morning that's significant. And here's the third thing as to why we can trust Christ. So the man answers their perspective that they say, we, we know that God's spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, I find this amazing, Pharisees, that you have come to the conclusion that you have no clue as to where he's come from, and yet he has done only what God can do. Only God can open the eyes of somebody who's been born blind. And so it's interesting that you don't have any idea where he comes from. And it almost seems as if he is, he's poking them in a, in a sense and he slams their belief by adding this third key piece of theology. The Word of God, it's the first one. The, the nature of God, kind of indispensable. And the work of God, what God does in the lives of people. And so he tells them, it is shocking to me that you guys can't come to the conclusion that, that, that God has opened my eyes. How can y'all not see what has taken place in my life? And this great affirmation of the glory of Christ comes from the mouth of this man who just says, this is an amazing thing that you have no clue that God must be all over this guy who opened up my eyes. All three of these have been evident in the life of Christ all through His ministry, and they were on this day. And let's come to our last point today. Let's read 31 through 34 again. He is going to speak in 31 through 33, and then they're going to have enough of Him, and they're going to say something to Him and respond to Him in 34. So let's look at this. We know... In 31, that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone who is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. And never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? Second time they've said this, I believe it is, and they cast him out. So let's close with this, with just a few things here that I think are really important. Listen to this God-centered understanding. Listen to what he's come to understand about Jesus. His eyes are being not only 
have been physically restored, but there's something going on in his life. He realizes, I've been touched by somebody that God's all over. And he doesn't fully understand yet, but he gets it that God's been involved in this. Jesus can't be a sinner. Not even possible. And again, none of the apostles have stood toe-to-toe with the religious leaders yet like this man. And he's bold. And he's just going to communicate his conclusions. And so here's what he does. Watch this. He's heard their testimony. This is who Jesus is. He's looked at his life. He can see his toes now, by the way. He can see his knees. He can see his clothes. He can see the temple. So he hears their testimony. And he looks around. He looks down. He looks at them. And he recognizes their testimony doesn't line up with the truth of what has happened in his life. And so he comes to this conclusion. Though he doesn't fully know it, yet... In its depth, he knows this. God has been at work in my life today. God has done this in my life. And so the first thing that he affirms is this. He says, Jesus is sinless. He's a righteous man whom God has worked a miracle in my life. Look at the first point of 31. We. Don't miss we. Who is we? He didn't start in those two hours a nonprofit organization. He didn't start a church. Guess who we is? He and who? The religious leaders. Watch this. Here's this guy who's not even a believer yet, being an apologist, being a witness, and he's saying this. You know what, religious leaders? I'll agree with you. I'll, I'll, I'll concede a point with you. God does not move righteously through people who oppose Him. So I'll agree with you. That God does not listen to sinners. So what's he saying? Jesus is what? He's righteous. He's holy. And he affirms this reality of Christ in his life. The man is taking what they're saying and again lays it upside of his own life. And he's come to this conclusion. There's no way Jesus is a sinner. Moses didn't do this. Open the eyes of a man blind like this. And he knows that God must listen to Jesus. For God did a work in his life through Jesus by restoring his sight. So he agrees with them. Yeah, let's come to an agreement. God does not listen to sinners. Here's the second thing that he comes to the conclusion of. Those who worship God, truly worship God, you know how they give evidence that they worship God? They do his will. They don't just sing songs. They don't just do activities. They follow and they obey. So he says this. Again, this is the man speaking. Listen to this perspective. Watch. Why do they tell him in a moment, and you would teach us? Why why do they say that? Because he's doing what? He's teaching them. And they don't like it. They have such pride, thinking, who are you to tell us how to see this man? We are the teachers of Israel. And so here Jesus Here, here this man affirms the next thing. He says this, but here's what I know. That, yeah, I'm agree with you that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God, if anybody exalts God and honors God, this we know, they do His will. So here I am. A few hours ago, I couldn't see. I can see. 
There's no way that God is going to give that a power to someone who's a deceiver, who's a mocker of Him. So therefore, this man, Jesus, who opened my eyes, He's not a sinner. He's a worshiper. His love is to honor His God. And He gives evidence of this, He says there, by doing God's will. I think this man, because he grew up in Israel, he would have heard the stories from Isaiah, the text that say this, that the Messiah will open the eyes of the blind. And again, I think he's coming to this realization as to who Christ is. And so he tells us and he teaches us that Jesus honors God as his great priority because of what has happened and taken place in his life. What could be a more God-sized work in your life than being born blind and now seeing, being born lame and now walking? I mean... I think you and I cannot fathom what these people witnessed over and over in those three years in Jesus' ministry. See, the man knows that Yahweh blesses those who walk in His purposes and His precepts. And he knows Jesus does the will of God. Here's the third conclusion he comes to about Christ. Is that worshipers, they are heard by God. In the beginning he says there, Hey, I'll agree with you. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God, here's the the reality. God listens to those who love Him and walk in Him. And here affirms this about Jesus. This guy hears God. He hears the Father. God's ear. Good news today. God's ear is attentive to the righteous. And it is clear that God listens to Jesus. David wrote it like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of God, and on his law he meditates day and night, and he is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. And all that he does... He prospers. And he's, he, he's come to this realization. Y'all call this man who opened my eyes a sinner, and I'm just telling you, he's not a sinner. He hears God. He touched my life. He is a worshiper of God. He has heard from God, and God heard him, and he touched me, and he healed me. And then he does something that is to be the passion of our life, church. He, is, he affirms that there is none like Jesus. He affirms, nobody is like this guy. And so he says in 32 and 33, again, the former blind man saying this, teaching the teachers of Israel. Never since the world began, go all the way back to Genesis. Go to Noah, pre-Noah, Abraham, all of that. Go, Go all the way back. Never since the world began has it even been heard that anyone... Open the eyes of a man born blind. And listen to this last statement by the man. If this man were not from God, he could do what? Nothing. He could do nothing. And so here is the former blind man teaching the teachers of Israel. You claim to be disciples of Moses. And yet Moses didn't do this, nor did any of the other prophets had given sight to a blind man. 
So therefore, Jesus is greater than Moses. And his point in this part of his testimony is to point out that what has been done can only be done by God. And the man knows of no story like this. And the religious leaders should have come, by the way, to the same conclusion, should they have not. Should should have known what was happening in their midst. And Moses didn't do miracles. So he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So at this point, the neighbors, his parents, the man's testimony, the man teaching them, They've gotten to a place where, guess what? They've lost the argument. So what do you do if you're an authoritarian government, authoritarian religious organization, and somebody is standing in the truth, and it is the truth, but you're not going to shift your truth to the real truth? What do you do? We've got to shut people up. And that's exactly what they do. They're like, we've heard enough from you. Not interested anymore. So they answer him as he's teaching them. You, you are like him. You are born in utter sin. They tell him. And would you teach us, they say? Are you kidding me? You as sinner, we're not sinners. We follow the law of Moses. We, we are Moses' disciples. You're a sinner by identifying yourself with Jesus. And they, listen to this. They cast him out. What should have been just hooping and hollering. Don't like Texas A&M hoops. Whatever y'all say and do. But all of that kind of sound should have been echoing off the walls of the temple that day. And all anybody wanted to do was discredit and discount what happened. Think about, again, stop for a moment. A man born blind is seeing. He gives testimony. And they're like, we're done with you. Thank you very much. You can go. And you're not welcome back. You're cast out of the temple. And again, this is actually a good thing. Because next week we'll talk in detail about this. When Jesus hears things, he's moved. Look at 35, if you've got your Bible still open. So Jesus heard that they'd cast him out. And having found him again, second time, he said, hey, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, sir? Because I'm ready to believe. And Jesus says, this is fascinating. Hey, guess what? You've seen the Messiah with your new eyes. You've seen Him today. As a matter of fact, the Son of Man Messiah is the one who's speaking to you right now. Can you see the countenance on that face of the former blind man? Who's like, I'm beholding the face of God. I'm beholding the face of God. So here's this guy who's not even a believer yet teaching us about discipleship and teaching us about the glory and the nature 
of Christ, of why he's worth standing toe to toe against any kind of authoritarian government, religious system, whatever the case may be, that might come our way in the days ahead. We just stand there, and the alarm will go off just like that, and we'll know when it is to happen. We will know, okay? This man, watch, last thought. This man who's not a believer yet knows what? He's sticking with Jesus. He's not buying the accommodate and adjust your life to my truth about Jesus. He's like, no, I don't really get it all, but I know that God's on that man who opened my eyes, and this is where I'm going to stay. In church, that's what we must respond as well. We must learn from this blind man to not accommodate untruth, but to stand in the truth. I tell you, John 9, what a, what a chapter, what a chapter. So next week, again, um, I'm going to talk about the spiritual ability to see next week. It's written. If y'all wanted to stay, we could go into it. I'm very, I'm very, very disappointed. Okay, all right. All right, let's pray. All right.